0: Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let LetItRollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes author David Cantwell to discuss Merle Haggard and his book, The Running Kind. Nate and David grapple with the factors that made Haggard one of the great country superstars, but prevented him from crossing over to a pop audience the way Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, or Dolly Parton did. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll.
1: This is your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by David Cantwell, author of Merle Haggard, The Running Kind. David, welcome to the show. Hi, Nate. And so this show traditionally has focused on sort of the cultural, technological, business aspects of music with a lot of emphasis on, you know, what factors made somebody a superstar, what kind of things inhibited somebody from being a superstar. And your book's a little different in that it's, a critical analysis of Merle Haggard as an artist with a, a heavy focus on the lyrics. But the reason I think this, is, this book is perfect for our show is that Merle Haggard is somebody who achieved country music superstardom and had a real shot at pop superstardom but didn't make it arguably because of his lyrics. Is that a fair assessment?
2: I think that's mostly a fair assessment, yeah. he's um, He definitely did not become a pop superstar because of records like fight inside of me uh, but I think that there was a moment in the early 70s uh, late 60s early 70s when his lyrics and his records one of the things just as an aside like I do a lot of you know lyrical analysis of Haggard's body of work in the running kind but I also try really hard to not forget that the music matters as much if not more so I think he, he, he was making records at that moment too that put him on you know on the list of people who might become uh, a pop superstar. He had a chance. There was a lot of country superstars in that moment um, who crossed over, Grayne Campbell, Johnny Cash, and so on. Um, so yeah, but, 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 then, but then fight and fight.
1: Yeah, but then fight inside. But And I'm glad you mentioned the music, because you know James Burton, among others, Elvis's, famous as Elvis' sideman in the Las Vegas years, as well as uh, Ricky Nelson's guitarist, played a huge role in Merle Haggard, and the records are great. They're great bands, great arrangements, and that I definitely don't want to give the idea that you're only talking about lyrics, because you definitely uh, pay that stuff to due respect. But uh, right there in the opening, in the intro to the book, you talk about one damned song, as, as sort of dominating the Merle Haggard legacy and the popular consciousness. Tell us about Okie from Muskogee and how it came to overshadow the rest of Merle's work.
2: Yeah, so if we're, if we're thinking about it in terms of how it overshadows what came before, so let's think about what came before. Um, Merle Haggard has just had a series of um, country number ones um, and songs that have kind of a country pop uh, lilt to them that could have been pop hits but weren't. Songs like uh, Mommy Tribe, especially Singing Back Home, uh, Mama's Hungry Eyes, Working Man Blues, um, its B side, Silver Wings, which is one of the most beautiful country pop records um, you'll ever hear in your life. And all of these things are sort of, you know, establishing Haggard as a songwriter and a record maker that uh, people who aren't country fans are paying attention to. Um, even, uh, uh, I think both Rolling Stone and Life magazine at the time, you know, made the argument that, you know, if, if pop stations would play singing back home, then it would be a huge hit. They didn't. Uh, and then Okie came out, which did become a very minor pop hit, um, So I don't know how much you want me to go into the history of that particular song. I want to come back to that,
1: but I just wanted to get that point in there that Merle's avra is overshadowed by one song. And I want to get to the whole genesis of that song, but in the the right time and place. And let's pull back a little bit. And and there's one more question I want to ask before we get into the sort of historical narrative and start going in chronological order. And the second question is, the book's called The Running Kind. Why did you pick that song, and what is it about – that song that you feel is definitive or or the right song to pick to title a Merle Haggard analysis?
2: Well, I think that particular phrase, right, the running kind, is uh, really just an ideal sort of summation of what um, Merle Haggard's about. There's a line in that song uh, where he says, um, every front door found me hoping that I'd find the back door open. There just had to be an exit for the running kind. And that idea of wherever you're at, you want to be somewhere else is a, a, an idea that shows up in Haggard's lyric over and over and over again. I think it's a uh, it's associated to, with his ideas of what he thinks freedom is. Um, we can get into that if you, uh, yeah, if you hit, uh, hit a few. Yeah, let's go ahead and
1: hit on the freedom point before we get into the... Life story.
2: Yeah, so I th- so one of the things that uh, just for example, he associate Hagler frequently associates freedom with train songs. He's constantly singing about trains. He loves trains. Um, you know, he catches uh, uh, catches trains to get him to get him gone somewhere else, to get him away from responsibility. In Working Man Blues, uh, he says sometimes I want to throw my bills out the window, catch a train to another town. Kind of a classic idea that if I stay here, I'm trapped with in a relationship i don't like a a job i hate uh just expectations from anyone demanding anything of me and so the way to be free of them is to sort of reject them this is a very common kind of uh rock and roll trope i think there's lots and lots of rock songs that do this thing and present it very romantically um for example, Freebird, Bird, <laughs> uh, you know, where, the, where where he's 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 leaving that woman behind. There are other um, <clears throat> there are Eagle songs and Alman Brothers songs all about rambling men and such, and it's all about sort of rejecting these obligations, and freedom is that rejection. It's moving on. For Haggard, one of the things that interests me about him is that. He does that too, but he tends not to present it romantically. It comes off as its own sort of a trap. So for example, in his in his Train songs, he's constantly saying trains are the, are the things that are gonna give him his escape route to freedom. But one of the things about trains is that they're, you can only go on the tracks. <laughs> they only go to the one place. It's a predetermined outcome as to where you're gonna end up. Um this happens uh this is comes up again and again in Haggard's lyrics. Uh you know, he, he sings in one song that he has rambling fever. Um, he talks in many, many songs about how he was born to be the running kind. He was born to have rambling. He, he's got uh, this, this. He's got a disease in his blood that keeps him moving on. So, what is presented initially as freedom is also understood as sort of this thing that he can't get out of. That's another trap, another prison. And one of the things I value about Haggard is that he definitely presents both those two ideas. Not as connections, definitely intention, uh, intention with one another. Almost like necessary compliments, like up and down, good and evil, city country, rich poor, prison. Those two things are constantly, always there, present, um, romantically, just the way life is.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the things that's fun about merle haggard or fascinating about merle haggard and and earlier this season we talked to randy poe about merle uh, buck owens autobiography and buck and merle both come out of the bakersfield scene buck precedes merle and buck achieves country superstardom first but other than he haw which is a different thing never really comes close to the kind of Breakthrough into the cultural consciousness that Haggard makes, and uh, my theory has always been that that Buck never created a legend. He made a lot of great songs, but they don't add up to anything. They don't tell a story. Whereas Haggard is constantly, from the beginning, telling a story. You've got the theme of freedom, which you mentioned, and we've already talked about the political thing, and we're going to get into. The Mama Tried and the Hungry Eyes. He, he he sort of becomes a poet for the Okies, the diaspora of Okies that move, you know, west to California during the Depression. And I want to hear. We're going to play one song, and then I'm going to ask you about Merle's relationship to the to the Okies. And this is Hungry Eyes by Merle Haggard, one of the songs where he established himself as sort of the poet laureate of the Okie diaspora in California
3: covered cabin in a crowded labor camp stand out in this memory I revive cause my daddy raised a family there with two hard working hands and tried to feed my mama's Hungry Eyes
1: And that was Hungry Eyes by Merle Haggard, which I put in there, it's very hard to pick four songs of Merle Haggard. He's been a favorite of mine my whole life. And I picked that one over some other very compelling choices because you call Hungry Eyes perhaps his greatest musical accomplishment.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, I agree that it would be really hard to... um, to pick one, but if I have to pick one, that's the one I'm picking. I think it it um, it sort of symbolizes all kinds of his strengths. It's a symbol of all of his best achievements. It's, it also provides a kind of insight into how Haggard worked as a songwriter. I think we have a tendency today to just assume that he is a purely autobiographical songwriter. And he definitely drew up, he, he's almost always writing about how he feels about things, but the events he's describing are not necessarily, you know, existing out there in the world in any kind of one-to-one relationship. So in, in Hungry Eyes, you know, he's singing about, you know, growing up in a canvas-covered cabin, which he actually didn't do. Uh, he grew up in a boxcar, which is another part of his legend that, um uh, has become very very well known um uh, it was actually his uh, a- an uncle and an aunt who lived in the canvas covered cabin uh, and he would sometimes go visit them uh, after his father died when he was nine uh, and so this these are things that in some ways that he's describing in that song are things that he's observing he's you know he talked about in the song about um, you know, the parents' um, hair turn, the father's hair turning gray later in the song, but of course he never saw that in his own father. But what he did see was the entire, you know, the, the white working class population of Bakersfield and the San Joaquin Valley in those years, uh, in, in the 40s and 50s, as they're trying to get themselves established in the middle class. I love how that record begins. Um, the way he phrases that, um, a canvas covered cabin stands out in this memory. I revive, which is, it's a song about Okies, but that's not the way Okies talk. It has, it has a very sort of, it has a distance. It's a formal quality, almost like this is a topic that's too touchy to, to, to to tangle with. And so he's coming at it cautiously. And, um, and then at the end, if, if you, I don't know how, um, you know, if we we get to a certain point in the recording, uh, the strings come in. And, uh, you know, I think I I, I love that on a song about the Okies, but it's almost like, you know, so now we've gotten to a place where we're a little more established. We can have things like strings just because we want them and because they're nice and they're pretty.
1: And one key point you make about Merle and his relationship with the Okies is that you point out that he's not Tom Joad, the hero of of Steinbeck's Scrapes of Wrath. He's John Ford, the director of the movie adapt- adaptation of *Grapes of Wrath*, and it's important to see him as he is a great American artist, not an untutored, right. you know, uh, migrant who's expressing something out, you know, just by living. He's an artist who's crafting a world, creating a world from whole cloth.
2: Yeah, and so so again, it's like uh, he's 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 um, the the Okie legend. You know, people leave Oklahoma and Arkansas and Missouri and Texas, and they head out there because of the Dust Bowl and the and the Depression. They go west to California. Uh, they go west to the Promised Land. But Merle was born in California. His family had already moved out there and already become semi-established. His dad already had a pretty decent job working for the railroad. And so when he's born, Merle in nineteen thirty-seven, it's like. He, what what is, what to his parents is the promised land to him is merely home. It's the place he's always known, and so I think that that has a kind of um, you know that's a an interesting quality about it. That he, again he's he's looking at these things once removed. The reason I compared uh, Haggard to John Ford is that like Ford, uh, Merle is not one of the immigrants who leaves one place and goes to another. He's first generation. He's heard the stories of what it's like to make that trip. He's heard the stories of what it's like to experience the classism and the prejudice that greeted the first arrivals. Uh, and then he, he's experienced a little bit of that himself because those things don't die quickly, but he is definitely once removed from it.
1: Another thing I found interesting reading your book that I didn't know is is Merle's relationship with Grapes of Wrath. And there's a point where you you reference chris christopherson it was one of his few peers as a great country songwriter in that era and christopherson was talking about sort of the box that merle had painted himself in with oakley Oaky from muskogee and fight inside of me and how he you know been become synonymous with the angry silent majority and Richard Nixon's culture war. And Chris's solution was, it's simple. All he has to do is write some songs about the Grapes of Wrath or, you know, uh, do a concept album about the Grapes of Wrath. But you point out that Merle Hager didn't actually like the Grapes of Wrath.
2: Why was that? (laughs) Right. He was, uh, I was reminded that even at the time, he, he didn't like that comparison because he thought for some reason that I'm unclear about That Steinbeck had portrayed uh, the Okies as ignorant and stupid and decadent, and you know, in other words, as as if he always acted as if Steinbeck's book was enacting the stereotypes and the prejudices that it was in fact challenging, and so I've. You know, he's always in his own, in his first autobiography, he points out, you know, I, I want you to, I want people to know that we weren't like the Jodes. We, we, we did well, we worked hard, and um, we had pride, is the word that he uh, uses there and keeps coming back to uh, throughout his career. Uh, it's weird to me. I, I wish that he were still with us and I could ask him specifically, you know, why is it that you think that the Joes are not. Presented without pride, because it would seem as if that's about the only thing they have anyway. So yeah, he always resisted that that connection.
1: And you know, my mom was an Okie who never left Oklahoma. Didn't, but her brother, one of her brothers, did join the diaspora and work for the railroading in California in that period in the thirties and forties, fifties. And her take on that was always about sort of material presentation. She didn't like the Jodes either, and she she resented the fact that Okies were synonymous with basically the Beverly Hillbillies, you know, plowing along in a jalopy with all their possessions on the top. And as to somebody right. who was just barely ahead of that crew, it was very important uh, to my mom's family to distinguish themselves from right. those kind of Okies. And I assume Merle uh, might have had a similar reaction.
2: Yeah, and I, and I and his parents did too. So one of the – like uh, near the end of her life, his mother, Flossie Hagger, gave an interview uh, – um, I think to American Heritage Magazine, where, you know, she talks about the, their journey out and they're stuck on the side of the road, their car is overheated. And some guy comes along a, on a bicycle who treats them really well and helps them out and gets them on further on on their journey. And she comments that we were, you know, it was really, he, he treated us well. He was very kind to us, which uh, I appreciated because everyone everybody else had been treating us like trash. And one of the things that it's, think is common among within working-class culture is that trash is always other people. Uh, (laughs) Working-class people are often lumped together uh, and looked down upon by the middle class. But most working-class people are middle-class aspiring, and so they have to distinguish themselves between those who are deserving of making it into the middle class and those who are trash which is a which is a term of hate speech i should point out trash white trash you know it's racist and classist both um but it's a you know it's a common term and i still think it's it's bound up in in the in the uh haggard story and probably has a lot to do with with the haggard's rejection of people trying to compare them to the jodes
1: absolutely and as somebody of scots irish ancestry uh who didn't really realize it i mean we would say <clears throat> my family would say, oh, we're Scots-Irish, but nobody even knew what that meant. And I've seen polling data. I'm a, in, in a former life, I was a political consultant, and there's consistent polling data that shows when you ask Americans what family, what country their ancestors immigrated from, there's a big swath of the country where they just say, we're Americans. They don't even know what country their ancestors came from, and it correlates exactly with the Appalachians and Oklahoma and the Okie diaspora. So it's the Scots-Irish. It's my people, and for whatever reason, we don't even know our own ancestry; hence, the terms "redneck" and "white trash" are used just as often by us to describe ourselves mm-hmm. as anything else, for lack of of better terminology. So, that, that, I'm yeah, glad you brought that up. There's
2: a distinction there, right? Between, I agree that you know. So, so, I grew up white, working class, as well here in South Kansas City, Missouri, from uh, people who'd originally come from, up from the Missouri and Arkansas Ozarks, right? So, uh, my people went north instead of west. And um, yeah, that's a term that sometimes was used by us, uh, sometimes used by us, uh, white trash was used to uh, describe ourselves, but it was done ironically. It's done kind of like with fingers crossed, <laughs> uh, with that knowing wink that that's not really us, I'm just exaggerating and being self-deprecating. Uh, but then sometimes it gets deployed as a weapon at those who we do see as below us, trying to, you know, we've made it a certain way up the ladder, so pull the ladder up behind us.
1: And sometimes it can be fighting words expressed at us as well. So uh, you know, oh, yes, like, yes, like yes. any other slur, it's got a lot of them. But I want to introduce another song, and then I'm going to ask you about a whole another theme that that is a huge slice of the Merle Haggard mythos, and that's prison songs. And I picked this song because it combines the running song with uh, the the criminal song. So this is a uh, Lonesome Fugitive by
3: Merle Haggard. Down. There's always one more city I'm on the run The highway is my home I raised a lot of cane Back in my younger days While mama used to pray My crops would fail. Now I'm and that's a On A Lonesome
1: Fugitive. Fugitive by Merle Haggard. And, I, you know, there's a number of these songs. Mama Tried is another one that's sort of definitive and was a special favorite of my mother. She would always lecture me that, you know, look, listen to this boy and how his mama tried and she shamed. never, never shame me by going to prison like that. What, What is it? I mean, Merle Haggard, as we know now, did spend some time in jail. He he didn't turn 21 and he did turn 21 in prison, but he wasn't doing life without parole. He did get paroled and he got out, but he was actually in San Quentin and saw Johnny Cash. Tell us a little bit about Haggard and prison and his relationship with that and why he was sort of slow to publicize that.
2: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I'm going to I'm going to push back on one part of your initial premise and, and that while on the one hand, it's definitely true that Haggard is identified with prison songs and particularly with Me Back Home and Molly Tried. Right. That's some of the greatest records. But he actually didn't record very many Prison songs, you see, I, uh, when I was doing the book, I saw that in over 300 sides, he cut while he was at Capitol Records, which is basically like 1965 to 1977. He did 13. Most of those were early, and, and they're interesting in that they tend not to be, they, they don't tell us very much about like what life in prison is like. They tend to be more existential songs uh, about how it feels maybe to be trapped but not actually not actually about day-to-day life in 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 prison fugitive um is an interesting song because it certainly begins to help establish his identity as a kind of outlaw small o right uh in the 60s uh, but it also reminds us that while Haggard is a great songwriter, he recorded tons and tons of songs that probably a lot of people assume he wrote, but he didn't. That song was written by Lynn Anderson and her husband, I think Ben Anderson, I'm not sure, I forget, um, which they wrote partly inspired by the Fugitive television series. Ah. <laughs> I'd also point out that, I'd also point out that uh, the Fugitive, I, I would say that's technically not a prison song. That's,
1: yeah, it's uh, on the run. I'm it's a criminal
2: make... on the run. I was <laughs> trying to get two categories yeah. in at once. And he, he, yeah, if, if he's trying to, uh, he's, he's on the run again. He's the running kind again. It just recently occurred to me that singing You Back Home, one of his greatest prison songs, uh, is also a running song. It's another running song. It's about how can I get out of this prison, even if it is just with my imagination, where, where, where the songs that the street singers can take me.
1: Huh. yeah it's 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 fascinating and I didn't realize that until I read your book that um, that he despite the big presence of the prison songs in his legend and outlaw songs, like you say it's a very it's a pretty small chunk of it. but there's another ca- two categories that I want to cover together that are pretty big chunks of his of and that's and that's working man songs and drinking songs.
2: The, the drinking songs were kind of where he came in, right? The first, uh, you know, his first big hit was Strangers. Uh, All My Friends Are Gonna Be Strangers, which is, by the way, is another one Anderson song. Um, but then he had Swinging Doors and The Bottle Let Me Down. Drinking songs were kind of where he came in. His first big hit, first national top ten hit was uh All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers, which coincidentally was actually another Liz Anderson written song. Uh, But when when his first big hits that he wrote himself were uh, Swinging Doors and The Bottle Let Me Down. There's a lot. Drinking songs have sort of fallen out of favor in country music, or at least I should say this particular kind of drinking song where you're drinking to drown your troubles, right? Um, It's... um, it was he. He was he became quickly expert at it. One of the things that he talks about a lot in both of his autobiographies is how before he'd had any hits, he and his uh, his manager Fuzzy Owen would you know sit down and go through the Billboard country charts song by song, and Fuzzy would sort of like just say, "Okay, here's why this is a hit," and he would break it down. Here's what it's about. Here's what's strong about it. Here's what it does. And I, I kind of feel like that's what Haggard is doing on those early uh, uh, country songs, country drinking songs that he has hits with. Is he, he's like trying to figure out the form. How do I have hits? He's a good study. It's when he gets to The Fugitive and then the follow-up song Branded Man uh, that he begins to sort of distinguish himself. Those early drinking songs are classic and great, but they're also sort of um, –
1: There's a lot of other artists who make songs like that. Yeah, they're generic. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And he actually, you know, he pretty quickly leaves them behind, uh, his single Stop Being That, and he turns to what you talk about, uh, the Working Man songs. The most famous of those, of course, is Working Man Blues, um, which I probably might say is after Hungry Eyes would probably be my favorite. It's such a great record. Right. It's got that, uh, like you mentioned earlier, that James Burton was a key uh, part of Haggard's studio ensemble. Uh, the lick that, uh, that Burton is playing on that record and the groove that he and the rest of the band uh, get going is almost immediately transferred to Elvis Presley in Las Vegas when he was making those comeback shows in 1979. Literally. It's the same band. It's the same band, and it's the same groove <laughs> that's yeah. the thing that always I think people sort of uh don't you know hear as well today as they might have in that moment uh and it's just one more way that Haggard was sort of like you know playing around with pop potential um in that in that moment.
1: Yeah, like like Buck Owens, the Bakersfield sound, and you and you go into some of the reasons this isn't entirely true, or it's kind of an oversimplification. But the basic stereotype is that the Bakersfield country sound in the '60s was wilder and closer to rock, featured drums and lots of electric guitars and steel guitars, less fiddles. Whereas Nashville was going country politan with strings, et cetera, et cetera. And like you said, that's right. a little bit overstated, but I think it's generally true, and and. Growing up hearing Merle Haggard and, you know, I would hear him on the radio and I had a couple of greatest hits albums. But until this, you know, the day of the Celestial Jukebox dawned on us and I could acquire his whole out al- you know, or at least listen through his whole album collection, I never went back and, you know, through all the first 15 albums or, you know, the kinds of things I did preparing for this interview. And so it's it's really fascinating, and i definitely never knew that james burton and the the taking care business band was backing up merle haggard and and the next sort of theme i wanted to talk to was his tribute songs so he did a whole album of uh jimmy rogers songs uh he he continually covered lefty frizzell and, and was very clearly an acolyte of, of the great lefty frizzell he did a whole album to bob wills but the one that he really kind of fell flat on or the most disappointed of those four is his Elvis tribute and uh, real you know reading it and realizing oh my god he he had played with these guys for years they played for Elvis for years why on earth did he not do it upright on that Elvis tribute album
2: yeah it's it's it is an odd odd thing it's um it's it's a testament to what a big Presley fan uh, Haggard was, was that he was already working on his Elvis Presley tribute album before Elvis died, um, and but you're but you're right. I think that that's a pretty dud album. One of the, I'd put it definitely in the probably the bottom third of Haggard's entire career, and it doesn't make sense. He's a huge Haggard fan. He came up in the Bakersfield scene where all those Bakersfield bar bands knew their Elvis Presley cold and could play it hot, and. You listen to uh, that record and you think, my God, this is just a dreary (laughs) sort of going through the motions thing. Why didn't he tap James Burton, who had been his band leader in the studio on all those records? Um, He didn't actually have the TCB band uh, backing him in the studio, except on, um, surprisingly enough, Okie from (laughs) Muskogee. That's Ronnie (laughs) Tut on Brushes and uh, Glenn Harden is playing the piano on the studio version, um, and Harden played on a few other tracks, but it's just Burton, but why didn't he get Burton? Um, one of the reasons, I'm guessing, is that you know he grew up as an Elvis fan in the moment, right? He was, when he goes to prison, he's, uh, it's in 1957, and so uh, Presley's already a superstar at that moment, right? And that's kind of the, the the direction Haggard takes on that record. is he tries to not do contemporary Elvis, seventies Elvis, late sixties Elvis, he's trying to sort of do a fifties Elvis thing, and that faux fifties kind of thing yeah. just doesn't work. He yeah. does get the Jordanaires, uh, like those fifties albums with Elvis, but um, I would have preferred that he try to get like J.D. Sumner and the Stamps, or you know the the backing vocals in the later years
1: yeah for sure and and you got through but, but you
2: know, I, I, I would, okay. go ahead I, I do want to before we leave uh, this idea of his tribute record so yeah that is such a key to the uh, haggard aesthetic and to i think how country music works how country tradition works is if you, if you if people want to sort of you know have a model For how to ensure that the country tradition continues as we go forward the trick is always not to make new records that sound like old records it's to make new records that sound brand new but that also manage to sound like or connect to the old records right so that's what his jimmy rogers tribute album does it does not sound like jimmy rogers singing in 1930 it sounds like a the album Roll Haggard put out right before that, Pride in What I Am. He's he's updated that old sound.
1: Well, just you, you place the Jimmy Rogers as at the as at the best of the class because he uses his state of the art sound and rearranges the songs, but he's singing the Jimmy Rogers songs, so and it's a great songbook to go back to. Yeah, and then and then and, and the Elvis one you know falls on its face, and the Bob Wills one lands somewhere in between those two poles.
2: The uh, the Bob Wills is what I worked on an example of a retro album. It's it's an it's a new recording that's trying to sound like an old recording. They've actually copied down note for note the original arrangements off the original Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys records. Some of the tracks are so close that they're this, exactly the same length. <laughs> <laughs> and uh Myrtle does Tommy Duncan decides or Bob Wills decides, he actually says at uh, one point, I'm gonna, you know, that try to sing Tommy Duncan's part on this, and by which he means exactly Tommy Duncan's part, um, and that's and that was the purpose of the record. He uh, he says at the beginning, Rogers and the Will's have uh, spoken sections where Merle is like explaining to you why this matters to him and why he thinks that you matter to us, and on the and the Will's record he, you know, says up front, you know, what I'm trying to do is to, you know, recapture that old sound. So that's the the, the, the difference between um, the Rogers and the Wills albums is I, one difference is that the former is a traditional record and the second is a retro record
1: although it did as you point out have uh, a role in spurring the western swing revival with commander cody and the sleep at the wheel and others and and probably influenced willie nelson and waylon as well who did a lot of bob wills tributes and covers uh in the 70s as well but right now i'm going to kind of make a a uh non-sequitur musical non-sequitur but it's because we've got to introduce our next song and it's a big one and it's it's sort of the plot twist of the whole episode and so uh, I don't know if this is an ideal way to release it but but we're going to hear Merle Haggard doing Irma Jackson and after this after you hear the sample David will tell us the story of this song Irma Jackson so here's Merle Haggard doing Irma Jackson
3: I'd love to shout my feelings from a mountain high Tell the world I love her and I will till I die There's no way the world will understand that love is colorblind That's why Irma Jackson can't be mine I remember when no one cared about
1: her And that was Moral Haggard's Irma Jackson, which I did not know until I read this book, was going to be the follow-up single to Okie from Muskogee. Tell us about
4: that.
2: Yeah, so after uh, Merle has this huge success and uh, gets this huge reaction to this song, um, we should probably note that, you know, at least in its original conception, Oki from Muskogee was a joke. That was what was inspiring it. But-
1: yeah. And, yeah and there's a point exactly. in one, in the book where you talk about the freakish reaction that they got the first time they played it publicly and it yeah, reminds it, me of it, hearing Waylon Jennings talk about the reaction uh, to Lucbach, Texas I mean there was just an immediate volcanic crowd reaction and so I, yeah that's definitely two points I want you to bring out about the Oak from Muskogee that I got from the book is one it was written as a joke they were passing a joint around on the bus. As they drove past a sign that said Muskogee, Oklahoma, and somebody said, "I bet they don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee." And two, that it's a pretty lighthearted song, and it wasn't. I don't think Merle envisioned it as this is going to be the big one. I think he thought it was just an album track, maybe or maybe a minor hit. Yeah. I don't I think he had any concept of what he was playing with here.
2: Right, and as, as I, as I, you know, going to some detail of the book, you know, that the song itself is just sort of laid out there, you know, as a joke. We don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. In the early '70s, even Merle was already, you know, telling journalists the only place I don't smoke marijuana is Muskogee, um, so that clearly wasn't where his head was at. Merle was never a big, you know, fan of authority figures like college deans. <laughs> um, he didn't even graduate high school, let alone go to college. Um, pitch and woo, uh, manly footwear. These seem like sort of deliberately facetious phrases. Um, which is interesting because then it becomes, okay, so if, if we're making fun of somebody, if this is a joke, who's, a, who's the butt? And it almost sounds as if it's the Muscogeeans, right? It's the middle class, square Muskogee people who are being made fun of. My sense of it is that, you know, it's a kind of good natured ribbing. Um, it's, you know, it, these are Merle's people. Uh, these are his band's people as well. And as they're brainstorming ideas for the songs on the bus, you know, it's kind of a... There before the grace of God go i they're they're worldly wise now they've toured the country they they're not small town folk anymore, um, so they can you know sort of point out the little uh, foibles of their people, but lovingly but these but then when he played it live uh, at an n c o club in uh, North Carolina, I think uh their reaction was just insane. They made him play the song repeatedly, shouting it out, wouldn't let him leave the club until he played it again and again and again. And so he quickly went from, well, this is a funny song to, uh, no, this is a very serious song. It's sort of, it, it's against the hippies. And um, in, in later years, and this is much later, um, he began to uh, explain the song as saying it was his attempt to sort of get into his dad's head and to say, okay, if my dad were still alive today and he saw what was happening in America, how would he respond? And that's not very jokey. That's a pretty yeah. sentimental and um, uh, faithful, loyal kind of rendering of it. But I think, um, it's, and so you know, so which is it? Is it serious? Is it a joke? Do you sing it with your hand over your heart or with your tongue in your cheek? Yes, I think the answer is yes. You do. You do all those things, and it just the power of Oki. I think, and and I. It's a problematic song. Um, the, the the power of Oki, besides the fact that it's just super catchy. One time, uh, Merle was complaining about maybe I shouldn't have written that damn song, and Willie Nelson uh, replied, "Well, if you don't want it, I'll take it." It's 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 a fantastic song, just in its own right, in in in, in many ways. But I think what the power of it is that it captures an ambivalence—not that it pro this or anti that, but that it captures captures how. Earl Haggard, didn't know exactly how he felt about those things. He was torn, um, not polarized, but ambivalent. And um, I think there's maybe a lesson in there for this moment we find ourselves in today, too.
1: Yeah, and, and his initial thought for how to get out of this, I mean, he 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 liked the song, he was, he was proud of the song, and he was... But he was already ambivalent about the reaction to it. Like, I, you know, you described being on a show mm-hmm. with Tommy Smothers. It wasn't the Smothers Brothers show, but it was hosted by Tommy Smothers. And he's introduced as sort of the other team, contrasting very negatively with Sly, Stone, Sly and the Family Stone, who've just blown right. the studio apart with a big party. The song that ends with All the Squares Can Go Home dance to the music. And, you know, then Merle Haggard is brought out, and they literally invoke, you know, uh, the fairness My Rule, which I can't remember what it's called, but that's back when the broadcasters had Fairness Doctrine, where broadcasters had to show both sides of a political argument. And they literally said, we have to do this because of uh, the Fairness Doctrine. And, and, you know, so Merle, I'm sure, didn't care for the way he was presented. Like you point out, it was recorded separately. So he recorded the song and didn't know how it was going to be presented in the context of the show. But his initial thought on how to get out of this is, I've got this great song about interracial love this is gonna blow some minds, let's put that out. Why didn't that happen?
2: He went into the, so, so that's all happening, the reaction, the, the hits status, and then the act reaction, and the music scene television show, Tommy Smothers, that's all happening in the fall of 1969. Just uh, after Christmas, he goes into the studio and records Irma Jackson, and thinks it's gonna be his next single. He told the journalists at the time, uh, song was inspired by the film, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? which. <laughs> Um, it's something that actually has happened quite a few times. Merle gets inspired to write a song that maybe we assume is autobiographical, but it's actually, he's written on a movie he saw. But um, so he's going to put that record out in uh, Capitol. Uh, I think specifically what that means is his producer, Ken Nelson, you know, doesn't want to do it. Says, no, we think this is a bad idea. Um, talking about the song uh, a few years later with the Wall Street Journal, he actually says, you know, they told me at the time they thought I was a bad bad idea uh, that people might call me an n-word lover. Um, and it's right there in the paper, and uh, they're not so polite about it as I was. And I think he just, uh, Merle ultimately backed down. I've always been sort of I, I, I think, again, I think the, the issue here is maybe ambivalence on uh, Merle's part. He's having these instincts for these more at least partly progressive, liberal tendencies. But when push comes to shove, it, at that particular point in his career, it doesn't take too much to shove him back into line. Um, I think he gave up. I mean, this was, he he had just had Oki. He's like their cash cow at capital country division, right? Um, they've already let him do um, a Jimmy Rogers uh, tribute record. He, they already are having him work on a Bob Wills tribute record, which are not exactly, you know, wildly commercial enterprises. So they're not gonna let him put out Irma Jackson. The other thing and that's that, frustrating about it is, is is that if you you know you, you listen to that record we just heard, it's beautiful. That would have fit right in on Top Forty Radio in nineteen seventy, you know, with a credence track uh, before it and maybe Brooke Benton's Rainy Night in Georgia after it. It's it, it has so much pop potential. Uh, sonically and thematically,
1: and and Johnny and Cash encouraged him to to put it out. Like you know, and Johnny had those instincts. To Johnny was one of the few people of that era that was able to walk both sides of that line. He, Johnny Cash and Bobby yeah. Kennedy were the, probably the only people that united, you know, George Wallace voters uh, with uh, Eugene McCarthy voters, and and Merle sort of had that potential. And and you know, it's it's one of the great what ifs if you know you just imagine. 1969, 1970, Merle Haggard dropping a song about interracial love. That would have blown some minds and probably won him a lot. Like you say, the Capitol was worried it was going to hurt, what destroy what he built. And it might have hurt him right. with the country audience, but it might have blown him wide open with the pop audience.
2: You know, say In the book, though, I think that, you know, he would have had to done a story of love about Jane Fonda in that moment. Uh, <laughs> had to lose to lose people in the country audience he was you know he was like a demigod in that particular moment uh, Now certainly there would have been uh some controversy but controversy was what you know got him Oki, right the success right there too so it's um, the thing that i wonder about i used to always think well what if what would have happened to you know merle's career if he had uh, counterbalanced okie with irma as its immediate successor, instead of fighting side of me. And, um, for the time, at the time I always thought, well, you know, maybe it would have been like a way of redirecting his career. But now he's sort of wondering if, if it, if it had been released the way he'd wanted it to originally, that it wouldn't have been a counterbalance or it wouldn't have been a correction is that we would actually hear Oki differently today if it's follow-up of Ben Irma Jackson. But instead, um, we it was followed up by Fight Inside of Me, which is a much more uncomplicated, belligerent, line in the sand, chip on the shoulder um, song, and so we we, we now hear Oki um, completely through that kind of a lens instead of you know the of a more generous uh, uh, lens that we might have done if he if he'd released Irma Jackson next
1: yeah absolutely in, in in the 2000s i was working on a political campaign i was working on the mayor's race in philadelphia and and with an african a good african-american friend of mine who was a political consultant we were driving back and forth from philly and dc and we'd like to put our ipods in and put them on shuffle and just hear each other's collections because you know we're both big music lovers and you know we're really enjoying the cross pollination and then silver wings comes on and she's literally like nate i'm a I'm appalled by you, you know, and, and, and I was like, silver wings, like, how do you not like silver wings? And I'm like, Oh, yeah, Okie from Muskogee, And it's just funny that that, you know, really painted him. And I I think you're right that, you know, country had just accepted Charlie pride and was very proud of that in the late 60s, because they're trying to show, hey, we're not all Bull Connor here. You know, this is the right. new South, and and I think I think yeah, it's just it's one of those big might have been's, and and uh, you know, just sort of like the way I, I described the way I evaluate these artists. You know, Buck Owens doesn't quite reach that Merle Haggard level because he didn't create a myth, and Merle Haggard doesn't quite reach that Johnny Cash level of being universally beloved because he picked a side.
2: I also think that I think that's true. Yes, uh, I think, but but I think part of it was that um, you know Johnny Cash and uh, Merle Haggard were different because Cash tended to be um, this kind of larger than life figure who, uh, you know, could yuck it up, has lots of novelty songs in addition with the serious stuff. Right. Um, He gets explicitly political, but he gets political mostly in ways that allow him to take both sides. He's like a a folk figure who's looking back on the past and recasting it uh, for a contemporary audience. But Merle, Um, doesn't allow the audience that distance. So I I think this is one of the things that allowed Johnny Cash to have that huge comeback in the 90s that I'm so glad that he did, but that um, Merle was never going to have that kind of a comeback because he doesn't harken back to something earlier. He was still so much present. He reminds people uh, in his songs and in his presence when he was with us uh, of those divisions, there's a lot of us who grew up, uh, you know, white working class who like to think that we've uh, gone off and become middle class and got educated and gone to college and work in offices instead of factories, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? And Johnny Cash will let you do that. You can do that very comfortably. You can kind of come to terms with your working class roots that way. Merle doesn't is not so comfortable. He forces you to deal with the shit that is actually happening um, in communities and in the world, and winds up usually. Ambival- ambivalent about it, you know, uh, being pulled in different directions in ways that it's difficult uh, to reconcile or to feel good about. He's not a feel good artist.
1: No, but he is a, a. Well, I get a lot of joy from listening to his music. It's it's beautifully sung, beautifully written, be- always beautifully arranged and performed. He was an incredible. But you, singer. you
2: understand that. It, you understand the distinction I'm making is that when I say Cash is a feel-good artist, what I mean is is that we can listen to Johnny Cash deal with really ugly stuff and come away feeling as if these problems are surmountable and sure, or they've been dealt with. Whereas Haggard you don't come away feeling that way
1: no and and, and as somebody who's scots irish redneck from borger texas myself i'd like to think i can talk about this but to me the 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 narrative of that saying you know he has the ogie from muskogee which is which surprises everybody by being this enormous it's not a huge pop hit but it's a huge cultural moment like it's maybe it wasn't played on the pop radio but people were talking about it and people were hearing it and you know it was it love it or leave it uh come, i'm sorry love it or leave it comes in on the fighting side of me and so he you know he he blinks on his opportunity to put out the olive right. branch with Irma jackson and instead doubles down on the confrontation and that is so scots irish as anybody who's wed, read <laughs> jim webb's book yeah. you know born fighting i mean you know that's the the book about the scots irish by somebody who's scots irish is called born fighting and basically lays out a premise that throughout american history the scots irish will fight basically anybody for any reason <laughs> you know it's just sort of like oh there's a fight you know who are we fighting not why are we fighting but who are we fighting right. and and yeah. you know and and so it, it's it's a great American story, and and Merle Haggard is a great country artist who expresses uh, his time beautifully, and so it, I definitely highly recommend him. And we're just trying to parse through, you know, comparing somebody to Johnny Cash. I mean, that's a pretty damn high level, you know. And when you've blown past Buck Owens, who was a country god in his own right, you know, you, Merle Haggard is way, way up there in the pantheon. Don't get me wrong; I'm just, you know, there's there's another level where well, you. no,
2: I. I agree. Haggard would be for me if I were going to pick the most important, you know, country figures post Hank Williams. Um, it's it's Haggard uh, and Dolly Parton sort of sharing the the throne there, uh, and then you know Cash even beneath that. The um, I think there's a but the, but the, yeah. So the, the only thing that I'm pushing back on is I think that there's a class difference. Um, Maybe maybe this is the way to put it is that Haggard has maintained um, his um, and, and or another way to put it even still would be has been limited to his working class affiliations, um, whereas Haggard has been able because he's covered rock songs and done this or that and had a TV cash. show. He's yeah. he's solidly yeah, Cash. He is solidly middle class. Um, yeah, uh, he's yeah. okay to like. He's safe Absolutely. to like. Um, yeah.
1: Absolutely, I'd I'd throw in Willie Nelson in that mix with Dolly and Merle and and Johnny Cash too. But but you know we could do a whole. He's
2: definitely one of those, and Willie is definitely in the in the Johnny Cash sense. You know, um, widely accepted middle class aspirational. Right. Uh, even uh, though he's a, he's, he's a hippie.
4: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> the hippie overcomes the redneck. So, David Cantwell, the book is Moral Haggard, the Running Kind, and it, it's been a real hoot uh, to talk about it. And sorry about all the technical difficulties, but I think we've got a good show. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah.
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at let it roll Podcast.com. Nate will be back next week with Irving Berlin biographer James Kaplan to discuss the great American songwriter. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can check out all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Merle Haggard, The Running Kind, is published by American Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com.